On December 6, 2002, Liu Danwei, a farmer in a sleepy rural village in Henan Province, China, is finishing up his work. He packs away his farming equipment and cleans himself up before heading back to the house. He says goodnight to his father, who has decided to stay in a separate home, which is also owned by the family. Then Jian Wei joins his mother, wife and two children for dinner before they all head off to bed. At around 1am in the dead of night, a lone intruder enters the family's home and finds everyone asleep. Armed with an iron hammer, the intruder proceeds to bludgeon the entire family to death, beating their skulls repeatedly until they cave in. Before they're all dead, the assailant also rapes one of the women. Once the crime is done, the murderer quickly leaves the scene. He buries the hammer under the dry earth at a nearby ancestral burial site and throws his blood-stained clothes into the river. The next morning, Jan Wei's father returns to the house to join his family for work, but instead, he finds a scene of complete carnage. The first person he sees is his granddaughter, her skull caved in, and she's surrounded by blood. His son, daughter-in-law and grandson are next, already long dead. Finally, he finds his wife. She's not dead yet. She doesn't have the strength to talk, but she can still bat her eyelids. He has her taken to the hospital for immediate medical care, but she too dies just 10 days later. Despite the crime being reported fairly quickly and due to the remoteness of the farm, police are unable to find any leads. No one has seen anything. And with a lack of evidence or witnesses, the case soon turns cold. It won't be until nearly a year later that the family's killer will be found and brought to justice. The killer's name was Yang Xinhai, and when police also connect him to 67 other unsolved murders, he quickly becomes known as the monster killer of China, one of the most prolific serial killers ever recorded in China's history. When a serial killer is on the loose, attacking indiscriminately and with enough intelligence to cover his tracks so as to leave the police with very little evidence to go on, you would think that it would be in the best interest of the authorities to put as much information out there as possible. Not only does this information help draw out possible leads, but it also gives the public the opportunity to protect themselves. Of course, you can make the argument that leaking the information about horrific crimes can cause panic, but if the opposite outcome is safe citizens and less victims, I think it's something that we can all live with. But this is not the case in China. This deeply authoritarian state has complete control over the flow of public information and likes to keep incidents like serial murder out of the public conversation. And while this policy does a good job of making China appear like a crime-free utopia, the reality is that it means that sometimes criminals can slip through the cracks and they're able to carry out their crimes from the shadows with people oblivious to what is going on. Such is the case for the subject of this week's episode. Yang Xinhai was a murderer so prolific he boasted crimes all across China. And as we've already heard, he didn't just kill in ones or twos. He massacred entire families. As you would expect from a man that grew up in an impoverished farming community in rural China, very little is known about Yang's early life. 
His village was small, only about 2,000 people, and of this population, Yang's family was said to have been the poorest. He was raised in a dilapidated hut of a home, the outcast in a community that society cares very little about. Yang was the youngest of four children, and despite the conditions of his upbringing, was said by his family to be extremely bright and hardworking, although he was somewhat of an introvert. His intelligence would later come into play when Yang began his murder spree, as he was incredibly adept at planning his crimes with great foresight. By 1985, at the age of 17, Yang decides that he's had enough of life in this poverty-stricken village, gives up school, and sets off traveling around China. He moves from province to province, and for the next few years, he works as a laborer. But the work was hard, and the pay was a pittance. And so he soon realized that he could make far more money through crime. And so he turned to petty theft, stealing mainly small household items that he could then sell for profit. In 1988, when he was carrying out one of these thefts, he gets caught and he spends some time in a re-education camp as punishment. The punishment doesn't seem to have had its desired effect though, as he was arrested for theft again in 1991 and again sent back to prison for rehabilitation. Now, I'm not sure what happens in these re-education camps, but I'm sure that education and rehabilitation aren't high on the agenda. The late 80s and early 90s were a time of great change and instability in China. The Tiananmen Square protests took place in 1989, and following that, there was increased pressure and sanctions from the international community. At the same time, domestically, a lot more stress was placed on keeping the population pacified. All this marked a change in the political and ideological fabric of China, but most importantly, the economic balance began to shift. Crime increased and theft and corruption were rampant, meaning that Yang was probably placed in an overcrowded prison and left there to rot. Left to stew in his cell, at some point Yang decides that he's had enough of simply carrying out small crimes and petty theft. After his second stint in prison, in 1996, he's arrested for a third time, but this time on charges of attempted rape. Now, if you had any preconceived notions of the justice system in China being exceedingly harsh, note that this was Yang's third conviction, and it was an upgrade in crimes from theft to attempted rape. But he served just five years in prison. Due to good behavior and Yang keeping his head down in prison, he was released after just four years, and in 2000, he was back on the streets and planning his next move. But this time, neither theft, robbery, nor rape would suffice. This time, Yang was planning murder. There are two schools of thought as to how and why Yang decided to turn to serial killing. Neither is very substantial. And given that Yang didn't target any specific groups, remember, he murdered indiscriminately, women, children, entire families, it's tough to pin down his exact motive. In fact, after his arrest, when he was questioned as to why he had killed so many people, Yang simply said, killing people is very usual. It's nothing special. So Yang obviously didn't see his crimes, or even his victims for that matter, as particularly special to him. It was just something normal, almost certainly the mark of a psychopath. But why did he do what he did? One belief is that prison had taken its toll on him, that the rough Chinese prison system with its unfair practices and enforced routines turned Yang against society, that he hated how it worked and wanted to punish the system by hurting those that followed society's rules. To back this up, one of the policemen that arrested him is quoted as saying he committed crimes not for money, but to hurt society. The second theory is that at some point Yang had met a woman and begun a relationship, when the woman left him, it broke his heart and left him hurt and in pain. 
His solution to his own suffering would be to lash out against society, wrecking families and punishing women with rape before he murdered them. To me, both these supposed catalysts to Yang's murderous rampage seem a little convenient, and given that they are impossible to substantiate, sound more like excuses made up after the fact by people trying to make sense of a man that could kill 67 people in three years. To me, given Yang's blasé comments about killing and the fact that at no point did he ever try and deny or defend himself, made me think that Yang never really had a motive. He wasn't after revenge against women or society. He wasn't even killing over a twisted belief in some higher power. And there's nothing to suggest that he even derived any particular pleasure out of killing. He never left any special signs at the crime scene and never kept any trophies, nor did he ever try to toy with the police in any way. No, he was simply a killer. Killing is what he does, and that's what made him even more terrifying. In the end, of course, this is all speculation. That we know of, Yang was never treated or questioned by psychologists, and even if he had been and it turned out there was some rationale behind the monster killer, it's unlikely that Chinese authorities would have allowed that information to leak to the public for fear of sparking copycat crimes or even damaging their own image with regards to public safety. Let's now move on to Yang's crimes. Far from being an impulsive killer attacking at any opportunity, Yang would plan his murders with substantial depth and detail. He operated over four provinces in China, vast areas largely made up of rural communities. These areas are obviously difficult to police and are even easier to disappear in, and Yang used this to his advantage. He would plan his murders days in advance, watching his victims' patterns and routines, waiting for the right time to strike. In some cases, he would steal the murder weapon, something like an axe or a hammer, from one village and then wait a few more days before murdering an entire family in a completely different village. After the murder of Liu Zhanwei and his family that I highlighted at the beginning, Yang then walked for two hours in the pitch black to escape to another village, even going so far as to wear different sized shoes so as to confuse the police. Sometimes he would kill entire families, and other times it would be just one victim. In some cases, he didn't even kill his victims. And whether this was by accident or on purpose, some of the people he attacked survived. This is especially true of some of the rapes he committed. Oh, one other thing to mention is that after he was arrested, police discovered that Yang had AIDS. We don't know how he caught it, but it's likely that he did pass it on to some of the women that he raped, but left alive. Furthermore, Yang would almost always use a different murder weapon, mainly farming tools. And this move, combined with his indiscriminate choice of victims, is what made Yang so prolific. No one was connecting the dots and pinning all of these crimes on one person. Remember, he killed 67 people in three years. On average, that's a staggering two people a month. And with nobody even looking for him, it's likely that Yang would have never stopped killing. Thankfully, fate played its hand. Yang's arrest was a complete accident. There were no task force out searching for him and there was no manhunt to track down the monster killer. No, at a simple routine check at a nightclub in Hebei province, police noticed a man acting suspiciously. They questioned him and they found enough cause to detain him and then they took a DNA sample. That sample matched police records for one of the murders that Yang had committed and on November 3rd, 2003, as simple as that, the monster killer was caught. Strangely, Yang didn't put up any resistance. Almost immediately, he confesses to not just the murder that the police have linked him to through his DNA, but 26 separate cases. That's a total of 67 murders and 23 rapes. 
Police were then able to confirm his confession through DNA and Yang was charged accordingly and sent to prison to await trial. The trial was short, some accounts claiming that it lasted just one hour, others suggesting that perhaps it took a whole day. Either way, it was over quickly and Yang supposedly refused counsel and never requested an appeal. On February 1st, 2004, Yang, now aged between 35 and 38, accounts differ, was found guilty and sentenced to death. He was executed just 14 days later by a single bullet to the back of the head. Yang Xinhai may well be one of the most prolific serial killers in China's history, but aside from the sheer scope of his crimes, Yang was a very straightforward killer. There was no theater to him or his murders and very little that could make him stand out. But what Yang lacked in celebrity appeal, he more than made up for in how he exposed how China handles vicious crimes. And if we are to believe that Yang's murders were because he wanted revenge against society, he may very well have gotten his wish. Let's now look at how the case was handled with regards to the public and the media. Following Yang's arrest, there was an initial public statement by the police that they had arrested a man in connection with multiple murders. This, of course, drew much public and media interest. Why wouldn't it? Nothing like this had ever happened before in China. But almost immediately after that, the police became very tight-lipped on the details. And at the station where he was arrested, the police said that they were waiting for the Ministry of Public Security to make a statement. Officials in the other provinces where Yang had committed his crime said that they had been ordered not to talk to the media at all. From day one, it looked as if Chinese authorities had wanted to cover up the case and make it disappear as quickly and quietly as possible. All of the major Chinese news outlets, Xinhua, CCTV, China Daily, had a muted response. While in stark contrast, the trial of the American killer Gary Ridgway, which occurred at around the same time, was given plenty of airtime. Even Yang's trial, which elsewhere would have become a media circus, was held behind closed doors, supposedly to protect the identities of the rape victims. All of this was in keeping with China's policy of maintaining an image of public safety and security. According to official figures, the murder rate in the United States is five murders per 100,000 people. For China, that number is just one per 100,000 people. This low murder rate is also tied to public satisfaction towards the government and their record on safety. And as the murder rate has dropped, public satisfaction in China has risen to over 90%. But how realistic are these figures? As we can see from the monster killer case, Chinese authorities are willing and able to obscure the facts. In order to maintain their excellent safety record, they deny the public access to vital information which ultimately could prove valuable in actually keeping their citizens safe. The police also didn't help matters, whether because of bureaucratic red tape or just pure incompetence. Local police were unable to successfully connect the dots in the monster killer case and put an end to this spree earlier. But that didn't stop them from taking the credit for his capture. The public security ministry actually sent out letters congratulating the police that arrested Yang. And in official statements, police said that they had successfully cracked the case. But of course, this isn't entirely true. They didn't crack any case. They didn't even know that there was a case to be cracked. It was pure coincidence that they arrested Yang when they did. Again, this was all part of a campaign to show the strength and capability of Chinese authorities. But of course, taking credit isn't necessarily a bad thing, especially if it helps people to feel safe. No, the real problem here for the police is that China is so vast and so difficult to police. 
unlike the United States, where each state operates independently and then they have the FBI to coordinate between the local police forces. In China, this is not the case. Everything comes from the top. China's Crime Investigation Bureau, or CIB, operates out of Beijing and is only deployed in high-profile cases of national security. And this means that crimes in cities get preferential treatment while rural areas are given less attention. The best that local law enforcement can do is to employ a show of force tactic, with boots on the street and CCTV cameras out to deter crime. This kind of tactic works for deterring petty crime, of course, but is quite ineffectual against real criminals. To make matters worse, China's push towards superpower status has seen a huge increase in the movement of labor. People are leaving rural areas and traveling to the cities to find work. In the past, there was less work, so this wasn't so much of a problem. But as economic development has increased, more and more people have joined the herds of workers looking to make their fortunes in the cities. And as people's attitudes towards moving have changed, so has the law. Previously, Chinese citizens were required to have a huku or residence permit that would tie them to the community that they lived in and that they were registered in. This system has become less enforced over the years to facilitate the movement of labor, and as a result, criminals have found it even easier to move around the country and disappear into the vast cities of modern China. So you can see that the police really have their work cut out. They have to deal with this overly centralized bureaucracy as they desperately try to track down suspects in an ever-moving mass of 1.3 billion people. In this complete mess, it's debatable as to whether publicizing serial killer cases would actually be of any help. The criticisms that it denies people the ability to protect themselves are, of course, well warranted. But at the same time, letting killers know that the police are onto them could prove detrimental to a system that is operating at half capacity. In the years since Yang's capture, there have been some changes to China's approach to dealing with serial killers and other high-profile cases, but they still haven't found the perfect solution. And I'll talk about some of those cases in later episodes. But going back to Yang himself and his supposed motive to get revenge against society, in some ways it feels as if he may have gotten his wish that his crimes did actually affect Chinese society. Although unfortunately for him, it may have been for the better. Unlike some of the other crimes that I've talked about on Memories of Murder, there is no pop culture movement surrounding Yang Xinhai. There are no movies, no books, and there are not even many documentaries to speak of. Even now, the names of all of his victims have never been released, and Yang's family has never really spoken out much about the life of their son, the man that would become one of China's worst ever serial murderers, the Monster Killer. Once again, that was Memories of Murder, an Asian true crime podcast. Thank you for listening, and I would like to remind you to subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts or any of the other places that people hunt down their podcasts. I would also very much like to hear from you, so please do stop by and leave a review for the show on iTunes, and hopefully that will help me improve the show and keep the show visible to new listeners. Thank you very much for listening. Don't have nightmares.